Well, here we are again. We find ourselves at the beginning of another year. And what this means for most people is that we're planning to do our best to wring out the old and to bring in the new with New Year's resolutions, which promise to change our lives. You know, according to one recent poll, 59% of us here in America are planning to save more money this year. Well, good luck with that. 50% of us plan to spend more time exercising, and so at least half of us are going to become gym rats this year. 47% of us have resolved to eat healthier, while 35% plan to lose weight. 19% are determined to spend less time on social media, and we know this because they told us on social media. You know, there's also the same percentage, 19% of people have resolved to reduce their stress at work. Well, good luck with that. Without debate, these are excellent resolutions, nothing wrong with any of these resolutions. And, And for those who can keep these resolutions, there's no doubt going to be a positive impact on the lives of those who stay on course. Sadly... The majority of those who resolve to reinvent themselves with these New Year's resolutions, well, they fail. According to one recent poll, 80%, get that in your mind, 80% of those who make New Year's resolutions fail by February. They fail by, 80% fail by February. That ought to be uh, the replacement name for New Year's resolutions. They ought to just call it fail by February. Because that's typically what happens. The majority of those who attempt to break their bad habits with New Year's resolutions will give up within the time span of two months, and that's truly sad. Now, if this sounds like your yearly struggle, then I'd like to present you with a biblical plan for becoming a better believer here in 2024. And with this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where we find Paul He's presenting the Christians there in Corinth with the hope of true transformation. And as you make your way to the fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians, I just want to take a moment to point out that the main reason for why people tend to fail to achieve their self-improvement goals through New Year's resolutions, well, it's based on the fact that most of us have the wrong decision driver. That's right. Most of us begin with the wrong decision driver, which sets us up for New Year's resolution failures. And listen, the wrong decision driver typically results in the wrong priorities, which then further sets us up for the fail. Uh, For example, you know, those who resolve to make or save more money this year, they're probably driven by the desire to increase their own personal happiness. They think that making more money, acquiring more money, saving more money will result in personal happiness. And what they fail to recognize is that the wealthiest people in the world tend to be the most miserable. So therefore, money doesn't always equal happiness. 
And yet the priority of personal happiness through the acquisition of worldly wealth, it oftentimes drives the same person to spend money they don't have on things they don't need in order to present a facade of happiness when in reality uh, the acquisition of all of these things they can't afford or don't need ends up causing them to feel the pressure of working harder to make more money to pay for the things that they couldn't afford. Yay, happy No, if you're driven by the priority of personal happiness, then the chances are you fail to achieve the goal of saving more money because you end up spending too much money on things that you're really trying to acquire that you think will make you happy, but then fail to make you happy. Another example of this can be seen in the lives of those who, you know, they have the plan to lose weight through diet and exercise, all the while thinking that, you know, if they can just get into that that perfect shape, if they can just have that perfect weight, They'll be happy, all the while failing to realize that the most beautiful people in the world are oftentimes miserable. You know, we tend to think also about the health uh, of our body being a priority, which is, you know, going to then result in our happiness. And if that's the driver, listen, those who plan to get in shape this year are probably driven by a a decision uh, which is, uh, you know, in the pursuit of personal pleasure. The decision is designed or, or is centered around a desire for personal pleasure. Or in other words, most of the people who live in the gym are driven by a desire to look good. They want to look good. They, 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 want, to, you know, they, they want the right look. They want the right body type. They, they want the right muscle tone. And, and why? why? Why do you want that? Well, because it attracts the attention of those who tell them that they look good. And they think that's going to make them happy. If, if you can walk around, you know, and people are constantly telling you how good you look and people are attracted to you, then that results in happiness. Well, explain that to all the half-dressed women who go to the gym, uh, you know, to put on a performance, all the while getting upset with any man that stares at them uh, in the midst of the gym. You see all these videos of women just upset with some guy that's staring at them when they're the one putting on the show. This is just ridiculous. And the same is true for the rest of life. Like if the whole goal is to attract the attention of others with how how beautiful you are, well, then you end up attracting attention all the time, which then takes away from your happiness. And so again, these goals don't really work out in the way that people think they will at the beginning of the resolution. The problem with this sort of priority is based on the fact that personal happiness can also be achieved in other ways. Like if the goal today is personal happiness, why go to the gym when you can just have a piece of chocolate cake and and a glass of milk? That's instant gratification. I mean, instant happiness is just to leave here right now. Let's go, you know, get a chocolate cake and glass of milk and I'm, I'm as happy as can be. The priority of personal happiness is powerless to change our lives. If your New Year's resolutions are based on the pursuit of personal happiness or the pursuit of personal pleasure, this is powerless to change our lives. And one reason why is because the pursuit of personal happiness will oftentimes lead us into a life of sinful selfishness that always results in depression. If your goal is to be happy, and so you pursue the thing that you think is going to make you happy, well, that thing is only going to make you happy for a little while, and then you're bored of it, and then you've got to pursue something else. 
And, and so you continue, continue, uh, continually look for that thing that will hopefully make you happy, only to discover that it doesn't really make you happy at the end of the day. And what this means then is that those who are living their lives in the pursuit of personal pleasure rarely, if ever, achieve their goal. They might experience it for a small season of their life, but then it quickly disappears, and then they're left with just the depression of the thing that they thought was going to make them happy didn't. What's even worse is that the priority of personal happiness will oftentimes result in a, in a state of deep depression after you go down enough roads and realize that none of these things make you happy. And so there is no happiness is what you tend to start thinking. Conversely, those who set out to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, or in other words, those who set out to live a life that brings pleasure to our Savior, we'll soon see that our creator actually has the power to transform our lives in the way that we want. In other words, if we live our life for the pleasure of the Lord, then he provides us with the power to change our lives so that we can become the people that we really want to become. And as a result, we end up experiencing the joy of Jesus as we walk in the transformative power of the Lord. And it's for this reason that I'd like to just encourage you Rather than making New Year's resolutions which will fail, why not resolve to live your life for the Lord this year so that you can walk in the joy of Jesus and experience uh, experience a truly changed life? And I want to consider how Paul puts it very succinctly here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you would look with me there at verse 17. Here Paul declares... If anyone is in Christ, notice, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, here in this verse, we find Paul, he's presenting us with the promise of true transformation. And I like the way that the scholars who gave us the New Living Translation rendered this verse. They put it like this. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. More simply put, those who trust in Jesus Christ have become new creations in the fact that we are now positionally perfect as our sins have been covered by the righteousness of our Redeemer. The righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imputed to the spiritual account of the born-again believer, and in this way we are new creations in Christ. And while it's true that we become positionally perfect in Christ Jesus, it's also true that we are now being called to practically walk it out. We're we're called to not only uh, be the, the positionally perfect Christian, but we're called to walk now in practical perfection by the power of the Holy Spirit. This was precisely the point that Paul was making in Romans chapter 6. It's verse 4 where he declares this. He says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. In other words, those who are new creations in Christ Jesus are now being called to walk in the newness of the new life that we've received in Christ Jesus. Thankfully for us, 
the born-again believer isn't being called to walk in the newness of life by the power of the fallen flesh. No, instead, the born-again believer has received the power that we need so that we can practically walk out the positional perfection that we received at the moment of our conversion to Christ Jesus. And to further make my case, I'd like you to turn in our Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. See, it's here in the fifth chapter of Galatians where we find Paul. He's helping the Christians in Galatia to understand that the born-again believer has been called to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. For the sake of clarity, I want to remind you here that those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ have also received the indwelling Spirit of God. We receive the Spirit of God at the very moment when we are born again by faith in Jesus Christ. Or, as Jesus described it, those who are born again are born of the Spirit. At the same time, it's also important to understand that we still have uh, this tension between uh, our born-again spirit and our fallen flesh. And that's what Paul is addressing here in Galatians chapter 5. Look with me there, beginning at verse 16, where Paul declares, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Here in these verses, we find Paul describing this struggle and and this conflict that's happening within every believer. There's a struggle between uh, the born-again spirit and the fallen flesh. And this is a struggle that every born-again believer faces each and every day. For the sake of clarity, it'll help you to understand that those who have become new creations in Christ Jesus, we we have the ability to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, and yet we're still plagued by the sinful desires of the fallen flesh. And with that being the case, it's crucial for every Christian to realize that the believer who is driven by the priority of personal happiness, well, they inevitably return to a life that is ruled by the lusts of the flesh. To prove my point, look with me again there at Galatians chapter 5. Again, it's verse 17 where Paul declares, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that... You wish. Now that word wish, it's translated from a Greek word which speaks of a lame movie that Disney recently produced. No, I'm, 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 I'm joking. We're not talking about that wish. This word wish was translated from a Greek word which in this context was used in reference to the carnal desires that delight our fallen flesh. There's things that our flesh still wants to do. There's a wish Uh, that our flesh has to pursue the the lusts of the flesh. In order to further grasp this, I'd like to consider the way that Darby renders verse 17. uh, He puts it like this, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these things are opposed one to the other, that ye should not do those things which ye desire. Desire, that's... That's another way to render the original Greek word there. Those who pursue the pleasure of personal happiness will only end up living their life for the lust of the flesh as they do what their fallen nature desires. 
And it's sad to say that there's a lot of Christians living in this way. They're living for their desires. They're still doing the things that their flesh wishes or wants to do. Listen, the priority of personal happiness will keep us from walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. The priority of personal happiness will keep us from walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Conversely, the Christian who chooses to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, the Christian who is living for the pleasure of the Lord, will then seek the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can walk in the newness of life. And in this way, the Holy Spirit then helps us to become those believers who are actually new creations, both positionally and also practically. Now, with this as the goal, I want to consider how Paul describes the righteous responsibility that every believer has to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And with that, I'd like to consider the way he puts it in Colossians chapter 3. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Colossians 3. It's here in the third chapter of Colossians where we find Paul. He's helping the Christians of Colossae to understand that those who are positionally perfect in Christ are now expected to walk in the newness of life so that we can practically live out the, 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 uh, the positional perfection that we've received by faith. In order to walk in new, newness of life, we must then seek the infinite power of the Holy Spirit for the help that we need so that we can then crucify our depraved desires. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in Colossians chapter 3. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1. Here Paul declares, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And here in these verses, we find Paul, he's speaking about our positional perfection in Christ and the fact that our life is hidden in Christ in God. That's true of you, Christian, right now. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. And so positionally speaking, you know, when God the Father looks at the born-again believer, he sees us through the lens of Christ's perfection. I praise God for that. At the same time, Paul moves on in verse 5 to speak of the practical application that must impact our lives today. And he calls us to put to death our members, which are on the earth. Positionally, we're already seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Practically, our members are still here on the earth today, and if we give in to the lusts of our flesh today, then we will live and pursue those, those lustful things. And so Paul says here that we are to put to death, or we could even say to crucify our members which are on the earth, and he begins by telling us to crucify anger. The born-again believer is hidden in Christ, positionally perfect, 
And yet practically, we are to crucify these things that would lead us into sin. Now listen, I, you know, I realize that we'll never actually achieve sinless perfection while we're here in this world. And yet those who use this as an excuse just to continue living in sin are simultaneously failing to realize that the Lord is actually expecting every Christian to pursue a life of practical holiness. Jesus even told us to be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. And, and with this as the goal, we are to crucify the depraved desires of our fallen flesh, which are listed here in Colossians chapter 3. Notice again there in verse 5 where Paul challenges us to crucify five depraved desires and at the top of this list is fornication. Now for the sake of clarity, that word fornication, it comes from the Greek word pornea, And it's a word that speaks of all forms of sexual immorality. Biblically speaking, the only sexual relationship that is approved by God is when a biological male marries a biological female and together have a marriage that is centered in God's perfect will. Everything else, sexually speaking, is immoral and therefore falls under the label fornication. This Greek word, uh, the the Greek word pornea, which is translated fornication, uh, it speaks of the immorality of a premarital sexual relationship. In other words, you know, anyone who's not married and is engaging in sex. This word also refers to any extramarital affairs. Uh, This uh, also refers to sexual sin that falls under the LGBTQIA plus label. Like anything that falls under that label, biblically speaking, is sexually immoral, or what uh, the Greek word is pornea. Furthermore, the word pornea is the basis for our English word pornography. And so pornea refers to every form of pornography, which can be found in all kinds of different, you know, uh, uh, productions, you know, whether we're talking about print or video, uh, you can find content on social media sites. Like every social media site has some form of pornography. And listen, it, this also includes the softcore porn, which is found in the majority of Hollywood's blockbuster films. And it's sad when I when I watch, you know, I see Christians talking about the movies they just went and watched, and I've already checked out the IMDb descriptor of, of that movie, and I realize that there's pornography in that movie. Why are Christians watching pornography? Well, I mean, it's only like 10 minutes. It was only a couple of scenes, you know. It didn't really show everything. Well, wait a minute, but that's pornography. That's voyeurism. Why are Christians engaging in this sort of voyeurism? I encourage every Christian to go check the content of a film on IMDb. You can look under you know, the descriptor of the film before ever going and watching it. And therefore, you're not subjecting yourself to the pornography that's being presented in most major movies today. And you might be thinking, well, then, then I'd never get to watch a movie. Okay. Is that, is that a problem? I mean, biblically speaking, we're called, called to, you know, cut off or, or crucify pornography from, from our lives. We're, we're supposed to abstain from pornea, which includes pornography. And yes, even if it's a little 10-minute part of a film. We've been called to crucify our pornographic or pornea desires. 
that will help us to become new creations in Christ who are practically walking out the positional perfection that we've received by faith in Jesus. Not only that, but we've also been called to crucify the uncleanness of our mental immorality. That word uh, that's translated unclean, the, the word uncleanness in this text, it comes from a Greek word that points to the thoughts that lead to lustful and licentious living. Paul was letting us know that Christians have been called to crucify even their impure thoughts. It's not just about what we're looking at, but what we're thinking about. And oftentimes the two go together. You know, it's been said, garbage in, garbage out. You know, if you're putting garbage into your brain, well, guess, guess what now you're wrestling with in your, in your thought life? Paul's letting us know that Christians have been called to crucify our impure thoughts, which includes the vain imaginations that lead us to entertain our darkest desires. Jesus himself encouraged us to avoid the lustful thoughts that lead us into a life of sin. As a matter of fact, it's in Matthew chapter 5. There we learn that those who entertain their lustful thoughts for others are actually engaging in mental adultery. Mental adultery. We should crucify the uncleanness of mental immorality. And, and, and what this means is that you know, we have to shut down what we're putting into our minds, but at the same time, we have to crucify the thoughts that, that creep into our minds as, as we might find ourselves lusting after other people. Thirdly, Paul lists the passions of emotional immorality. And that word passion found here in this text it refers to the depraved and vile passions, and it speaks of the strong sexual desire and emotional excitement that leads us to lustful living. Fourthly, Paul challenged us to crucify the evil desires that lead us to pursue the pleasures of sin. Evil desires are the wicked cravings that lead us to desire that which is forbidden. And in order to sum it up with simplicity, evil desires include any carnal craving which is in conflict with the will of God. It's in James chapter 1 where we learn about the way that those who entertain their depraved desires will be drawn away by those evil enticements. And with that being the case, Paul encouraged us to crucify every evil desire. Sadly, over the years of being a senior pastor, you know, I've watched people entertaining evil desires and, and as they've entertained it in their mind, next thing you know, they're, they're pursuing it with the way they live their life. And, and it's, not, it's not too long before they just disappear from the church and they're off in the world looking for ways to, to, to then, you know, uh, live out those evil desires. And, and it's not uncommon, Christian. Listen, we're all just a few bad decisions away from complete backsliding. And so we have to crucify these evil desires. Fifthly and finally, Paul encouraged every Christian to crucify our covetousness. And, you know, covetousness is actually the greedy desire to acquire that which the Lord is choosing to withhold from us. And I realize that, that I'm guessing most of us are praying for something that we don't have, something that we would like to have, and so we're asking the Lord for it. Listen, if the Lord isn't giving it to you and you decide to go ahead and pursue it anyway, then that is covetousness. And according to Paul here, covetousness is idolatry. Now, is it that the thing that we covet is the idol? Maybe. But the chances are we've become our own idol because we're putting our own desires above the Lord's provisions. Listen, if the Lord isn't providing something for you, is, is he at fault? 
Or is your desire just wrong? Well, the chances are you have the wrong desire. If we delight ourselves in him, he will give us the desires of our heart, meaning that he will put the right desires in our hearts. And so if you desire something that the Lord is withholding from you, it's not because he's a big meanie, but it's because he knows that this is not what you need. And so rather than you know, having the covetous desire to acquire that thing or, or that person or whatever it is, we would do well to repent of the covetousness of idolatry. And, the, and, the, and who's the idol? Well, we are. When we put our desires above what God is providing, then we're basically worshiping ourselves. We're saying that we know better than God, you know, and so we put ourselves upon the pedestal and we're effectively worshiping ourselves in the pursuit of the thing that the, God, that, that, that the Lord isn't providing for us. And I like the way that the Lord Jesus sums all this up in Luke chapter 12. It's actually verse 15 where he says this, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Christian, listen. Rather than bowing down before the altar of whatever it is that we're coveting, let's crucify those covetous desires and and, and let's instead seek the things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And as we consider this list, you know, it's important for us to realize that those who are driven by the pursuit of personal happiness or the pursuit of personal pleasure, they soon find themselves enslaved by the sinful desires which lead us to live for the lusts of the flesh. And it's for this reason that Paul encouraged us to put off the sinful desires of the old man so that we can walk in in the newness of life. As a matter of fact, if you would look with me again here at Colossians chapter 3, I want to focus your attention there at verse 6. There Paul writes, because of these things, in other words, because of the list of things that he just presented, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Now here in these verses, we find Paul, he's encouraging every believer to continue walking in the newness of life. And one way that we do this is by keeping our carnal emotions in check. Please understand that the Christian who is given over to their carnal emotions, they end up being controlled by their fleshly feelings. Or in other words, they're just following after their gut, right? And it's sad to say that there are many in the church today who are following their feelings. Well, they feel this way. And you oftentimes hear them using this in their terminology. Well, I feel this way, or I feel like this is the path that I'm supposed to be on, or I feel like this is what God is telling me. Well, be careful with your feelings. Because those who put put their faith in their feelings will oftentimes be led astray. And many in the church today are following their feelings rather than following the Lord Jesus by faith. That being the case, I want to consider the encouragement that Paul presents here in verse 8. Notice again where he declares... Now you yourselves are to put off all these. And he begins with the word anger. Now that word anger refers to the excitement of the mind which causes us to become agitated. And listen, it's important for us to understand that anger isn't always sin. And and I get it, there's a lot of Christians who think that anger and sin, same thing. They think that all anger is sin, and that's just not the case. As a matter of fact, 
It's in Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul declares, be angry and do not sin. This is basically how I drive. You know, when when I'm driving around Austin, I'm, I'm meditating on this verse, be angry and do not sin. You know, listen, anger in and of itself is not necessarily sin. Case in point, it's in the seventh Psalm where King David declares, God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. Did you know that? I know there's a lot of evangelists who love to say, God is love and God loves you and Jesus loves you and love, love, love and love is love and let love be love and these sorts of things, right? Like, like we much rather talk about God's love than God's anger and yet we, we must recognize that God is angry with unrepentant sinners each and every day. The Lord is filled with righteous indignation as he considers the sins of those who refuse to repent of their wicked ways. And in this context, we can see how the anger, which is based in righteous indignation, is actually in line with the character of our creator. There are things that we ought to be angry about. There are things that we ought to be angry about. I don't know about you, but I am angry about abortion. And I am angry about the health officials who have taken a stance to suggest that the life in the womb is not real life. That, that the baby developing there in the womb of their mother can be aborted because it doesn't really deserve the same protections as those outside of the womb. I don't know about you, that angers me. And it frustrates me that we live in a country that's just kind of like, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll let this go. There's a lot of things that should anger us. We ought to be filled with righteous indignation about a nation that is largely given over to, to sinfulness. Not all anger is sin. But listen, the anger that's based on selfish emotions, the anger that's based on narcissism, this is sin. This sort of anger can lead us into a life of sinful decisions, and it's for this reason that Paul encouraged every believer to put off the emotionally charged response of unrighteous anger. Or in other words, believers should keep their bad temper in check so that we don't sin. Not only that, but Paul also tells us to put off wrath. Not just for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that wrath is a type of anger. It typically, you know, boils over quickly and, and then just as, as quickly subsides. It's an anger that's seen in the life of those uh, that we consider to have a short fuse. You know, they, they have a short fuse. It doesn't take much for them to become angry. And if this sounds like you, listen, it's time for us to keep this sort of anger in check. Paul also mentions malice. This is also found on this list of emotional no-nos. And just to be clear, malice is the emotional anger that causes us to have an ill will towards others, even to the point of wishing them harm. This is the sort of anger that leads us to maybe plot revenge against those who have hurt us. If you ever find yourself, you know, just mentally considering all the ways that you might get back at that person, that's a no-no. That, that is emotionally charged malice. And Paul says, cut it out. And, and listen, if this sounds like something you struggle with, I encourage you to remember uh, what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12. 
It's there where he says, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The malicious thoughts that would lead us to seek revenge ought to be crucified as we set out to walk in the newness of life which is found in Christ Jesus. Not only that, but Paul also encouraged those who are new creations in Christ to put off blasphemy. In this context, the word blasphemy, it's the act of speaking about others in a derogatory way, all with the goal of injuring their good name. Simply put, Paul was encouraging every Christian to abstain from the slanderous speech, which which can ruin the reputation of, of those who are being victimized and even vilified. Furthermore, Paul went on to encourage us to put filthy language out of our mouths. Filthy language refers to the cursing that defiles the minds of those who hear you speaking. This not only includes cursing, but it also includes coarse jesting, which leads others to entertain impure thoughts. And according to Paul, Christians should crucify uh, the emotional feelings which would lead us to speak to others in these sorts of ways. And listen, not only is filthy language a no-no, but so is lying to one another. And with this in mind, let's pick up our study of Colossians chapter 3. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 9. Here Paul declares, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Christian, listen, the believer who wants to walk in the newness of life, which is found in Christ Jesus, well, we should stop speaking deliberate falsehoods in an attempt to deceive others. We should stop using deception as a way to get our will. I like the way that Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 4. It's there where he declares, Concerning your former conduct, put off the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Christian, listen, those who want to enjoy a changed life must resolve to speak the truth in love and according to the holiness, and according to the knowledge and the will of God. At the same time, Paul also encouraged every Christian to realize that we should not only speak the truth in love, but those who want to walk in the newness of life should study the truth of God's word. And and, and we should study the truth of God's word so that we can continue to be renewed in the knowledge of the Lord. In this way, we'll continue to learn more and more about the character of our Creator, as he continues to transform our lives. With this as the goal, Paul directed every disciple to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ according to the knowledge that we have in his holy word. And with this in mind, let's look again here at Colossians chapter 3. I want to direct your attention to verse 12. 
Here Paul declares, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand that those whose lives are hidden in Christ Jesus will end up living a life that begins to look just like Jesus. This includes the tender mercy of our Messiah, which is expressed through a heart of compassion. Tender mercy is also the sympathy that shows concern for those who are suffering. Those who are new creations in Christ Jesus should also demonstrate the kindness of our king. Therefore, kindness, well, it's the second quality on Paul's list here. That being the case, we should also ask the Lord to to help us to become those believers who are demonstrating the kindness of Christ Jesus. Do you have the same kindness that Christ demonstrated during the days of his earthly ministry? Because we should. Paul also commanded Christians to be clothed with humility. Now, just to be clear, humility is a modesty that's marked by a deep sense of one's moral littleness. Humility is a recognition of how far we've fallen in comparison to the Lord's perfect standard. Sadly, you know, the world values pride over humility. The world values pride over humility. As a matter of fact, to prove my point, I would ask, How many humility uh, parades have you seen? One? Have you ever seen even one humility parade? You know, every March we're going to get together and have a humility parade. Nope. Not once. How many pride parades have you heard about? It's amazing to consider how the world values pride over humility. And yet the Lord came... The Lord, who has every reason to be proud. You know, the Lord Jesus never sinned once. At the very core uh, of the Lord's humanity, we find his everlasting deity who is forever holy. And yet, he humbled himself and came in the form of a bondservant. And, And that's the example that we've been called to follow. We should be walking in humility not pride. The fourth quality that Paul mentioned there in verse 4 is meekness. And just to be clear, meekness is not a synonym of weakness. You know, when we think about you know, someone who's meek, you know, we tend to think about someone who's also weak. But listen, I'm here to tell you that meekness and weakness are not synonymous. Meekness is actually power under control. And a perfect picture of this could be seen on the day uh, of the Lord's uh, arrest. You know, it was... Uh, there in the garden when the soldiers came to arrest the Lord Jesus and they asked where Jesus was and he just simply said, I am. And the soldiers fell to the ground. Uh, Imagine what kind of power that would take just to say two words and cause uh, soldiers to fall to the ground. 
That, that's an incredible amount of power. And yet he went on to allow those same soldiers to arrest him, to, to haul him uh, to Temple Mount, and, and then proceed to hand him over to the Romans who then crucified him. Now, within the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ is the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at any moment, the Lord Jesus could have simply put a stop to the whole thing. He could have just ended everyone that was trying to crucify him with just a word. And yet he controlled that, that, that omnipotence. He controlled that so that he could allow them to crucify him. That's meekness, power under control. And we're called to be meek. The meekness of Christ Jesus, who set aside his glory in order to take on the frailty of humanity, is the example that we've now been offered. We're, we're called to, to crucify the desire to, to, to use our power to control others. We're, we're called to crucify that so that we can become meek, just like our Messiah was meek. The fifth quality that Paul presented here in these verses is long-suffering. And it's uh, there in verse 13 where Paul describes long-suffering as bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Christian, listen, if you really want to experience a changed life in 2024... Well, then I, I encourage you to become a long-suffering saint who is bearing with one another, who is walking in forgiveness for one another, realizing how much we've been forgiven. The sixth quality of the new creation is, of course, love. And if you would, notice with me again there in verse 14, there Paul declares, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Paul here is talking about the sacrificial love that the Lord demonstrated when he laid down his life so that we might be saved. The agape love of the Lord by which we are saved is the bond of our perfection. And, and listen, this, this is the only bond that we have because this is the one thing that we all have in common. You know, most of us come from different backgrounds, different places. I mean, you know, if we consider, you know, whether it's race, gender, whatever, you know, we all have things that separate us. But it's the love of the Lord that connects us. It becomes the bond of our perfection. To further grasp my point, let's look back at Colossians 3. I want to focus your attention at verse 11. Here Paul assures us that the new creation in Christ Jesus is neither Greek nor Jew. Now think about that. Are there Greeks? Yeah. Are there Jews? Of course. And, and yet, in Christ, this no longer matters. The wall of separation between Gentiles and Jews is now brought down. Are there still Jews? Yes. Are there still Gentiles? Yes. But that's no longer necessarily important in Christ Jesus. Also, those who are circumcised and uncircumcised. Clearly, this is still a distinction that exists here on this planet. Are there barbarians? Are there Scythians? Are, are there people enslaved? Are there people who are free? Yes, of course. These distinctions still exist here in the world. 
But notice at the, verse, at the end of the verse, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, those who are in Christ are no longer known by these distinctions, but rather we are known by the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should no longer then be separated by our superficial differences. And instead, we should focus on the thing that joins us together, which is the bond of perfection. And what is that? The agape love of the Lord. Listen, the world loves to focus on the things that separate us. You know, whether you're watching legacy news sources or, you know, whether you're online or looking at some woke person's website about, you know, how this race is bad and that race is good and these sorts of things or this gender is more important than that gender and, you know, this person can be any gender they want. They, they want us to focus on all these things, these natural earthly things that separate us. And Paul says, don't worry about it. In Christ, there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free. When we come to church, listen, if you're looking for the person who is of the same race so that you can connect with them, or well, let's, let's go and, and, and connect with people of the same gender, or let's, let's go to church and let's see if we can't connect with people uh, of the same. Listen, all these earthly distinctions no longer matter. Let's come together and enjoy the bond of perfection, which is the agape love of the Lord. Are you different from me? More than likely, I'm guessing, you know, beginning with size and... and We all have things that separate us. We all have distinctions that make us different. And if we're not careful, we can allow these distinctions and differences to separate us. We can begin to focus on these things that would separate us from one another. And Paul's saying, don't do it. Quit worrying about all these earthly distinctions and focus in on the one thing that bonds us together. The agape love of the Lord. Listen, rather than entering into this new year seeking blessings for ourselves, you know, rather than entering into this new year with the goal of self-improvement and, and, and self-motivation and you know, self-blessings and you know, me, 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 me. Listen, those who follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to start looking for opportunities to be a blessing to others because this is the example that our Savior set. Remember, it was for the joy that was set before him that he came, took on the frailty of humanity. He endured the cross. He disregarded the shame of it just so that he could be a blessing to us, just so that we could become new creations by faith in his sacrifice. And with this as the example, well, we need to start thinking less about how we can be blessed this year we need to start thinking less about how we can acquire more, about how we can achieve our goals, and we need to start thinking more about how we can be a blessing to others, how we can sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others in the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in, in light of the Lord's example that Paul encouraged us to put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And with this as the goal, I encourage every Christian to enter into this new year with the goal of crucifying the selfish desires that lead us to put ourselves first. And instead, let's walk in the agape love of the Lord as we set out to become a blessing to others. Now, as we consider everything that we've covered here in this study so far, I realize that you know there's no way 
are going to perfectly accomplish all of this, you know, uh, in, in a day. Uh, listen, I know this is a process. And, and, and I'm not even suggesting that, that we begin with a resolution right now to make it happen in the power of our flesh. Because listen, we're not going to change our lives. We need the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can walk in the Spirit. And as we walk in the Spirit, then we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. With that being the case, I simply encourage you to, to make the same commitment that Paul made in the book uh, <clears throat> excuse me, of Philippians. With this as the focus, if you would, uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. See, it's here in the third chapter of Philippians where we find Paul. He's readily confessing to his own imperfections. He's readily confessing to his own struggles. But yet, rather than giving up and throwing in the towel, he resolves to press forward with a focus on Jesus Christ. I want to consider how Paul describes it here in Philippians chapter 3. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 13. Here Paul declares, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul, he's recommitting himself to doing this one thing, and the one thing that he's talking about is pressing forward toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And while he's confessing that he has yet to apprehend practical perfection, he keeps pressing forward. He's not living life in the rearview mirror, always looking back at, at the mistakes of the past. He's pressing forward towards the goal, towards the finish line of faith. And that's my encouragement for every believer here today. I encourage you to follow in the footsteps of Paul by realizing that those who want to continue walking in the newness of life must simply resolve to press toward the finish line by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's also important to understand that the goal line should not be personal pleasure, or, or happenstance happiness. That should not be our goal. It wasn't the goal of Jesus. I'll remind you that Jesus was perfectly happy in his pre-incarnate state there within the Godhead. Was there any amount of happiness that was lacking there in the Logos prior to his incarnation? Absolutely not. Jesus did not come to the earth to achieve personal happiness. He came to the earth through the incarnation for the joy that was set before him, and the joy that was set before him is our salvation. He came for us. He came so that we might be saved. Therefore, if you're going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, don't pursue personal happiness. That's not our goal. The person who resolves to pursue personal pleasure only ends up depressed, while the person who resolves to pursue personal holiness in an attempt to please God, well, we end up being filled with the joy of Jesus. With that, I want to encourage you in closing to make a daily resolution to pursue personal holiness 
by maintaining a daily devotional life with the Lord. Christian, listen, the majority of those who make yearly resolutions fail within two months. And so we know that that's not a solution. That being the case, I encourage you to wake up every day and make a daily resolution with the Lord during your devotional time. Rather than rushing out of the door every day for work, I encourage you, begin your day spending time with our Savior. And during that devotional time, appropriate the daily mercy of the Lord. I'll remind you, the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Now, why would they be new every morning? Well, because we blow it every day. And yet the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Well, we ought to spend time every morning acquiring those daily, uh, those daily mercies of our Messiah. And once we receive the mercy of the Lord, I encourage you to ask the Lord to then empower you with his Holy Spirit, giving you that daily bread that we need so that we can continue to press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And in this way, we will become believers who are not only positionally perfect in Christ, But by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're also becoming practically perfect and for the glory of God. Let's pray.